Welcome to One Cause Church. Here is another inspirational message from Senior Pastor Eric Holler. Let's, let's grab our Bibles and go to the book of Zephaniah as we are in our Route 66 series going through uh, the books of the Bible and we are coming toward the end of the Old Testament and um, tonight we're going to be looking at Zephaniah and <clears throat> Haggai and, um, and then we'll have two left after that. But I want to just peek into these books tonight. We're just giving basically snapshots um, from different books of the Bible and we're, we're navigating our course through with our map. MAP stands for memento. That is something that you're gonna, a truth that you'll be able to take into your life and apply it to your life. And the A stands for attraction. We're gonna look at maybe a big thought or a big big theological thought or a big story in that book. And then P, we always arrive at the person of Jesus. All right, throughout scriptures. So throughout these scriptures, throughout these uh, books, and that's that's how we're we're making our way through this great uh study and uh, travel through the books of the Bible. Um, so Zephaniah is where we're going to, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah. As you're turning there, this man got bit by a stray dog, and so he went to the doctor, and the doctor uh, looked him over and ran some tests and confirmed that, he said, sorry, uh, you have rabies, uh, to which the man quickly sat down, grabbed a piece of paper and a and started writing frantically, and the doctor said, hey, 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 this is a curable disease. There's no need to write out your last will and testament. The guy said, oh, it's nothing like that. I'm just writing names of people I want to bite. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Now, aren't you glad you came to church tonight? Yeah. Just for that very reason. Amen. Amen. Glad all of you are here. God bless you. Zephaniah, <clears throat> the name means Yahweh has treasured or, or Yahweh has hidden. And he is the great, great grandson of King Hezekiah, evidently King Hezekiah of Judah. Now, this is, this is not at all certain, but it's the most likely Hezekiah that we're speaking of. There are two other Hezekiahs in the Old Testament, but they seem to be from different times that would not match up with Zephaniah's life. And it seems to be that he is royalty. And um, he, if he was indeed a descendant of the king, this would make him the, the writing prophet with the most royal blood in his veins, except for David and Solomon. Apart from the names of his immediate forefathers, we know nothing more uh, about him for sure, though it seems fairly certain where he lived because he references, uh, his references to Judah and Jerusalem in chapter 1 seem to indicate that he lived in Jerusalem, which would fit a king's uh, descendant. He ministered during the reign of King Josiah, as you can read in, in chapter 1, verse 1. It says that he reigned during that time. <clears throat> Josiah's reign was somewhere between 640 and 609 B.C. Um, so Zephaniah alluded to Deuteronomy often in this book, and he may have done so because of the discovery of the law during the reign of Josiah. Do you remember it was, it was that Josiah brought reformation back to Israel. And it was prophesied of him years and years before. And God had uh, mentioned him by name through another prophet 
that he would, he would reform Israel. And so Josiah did that in many, many ways. And he brought back the love for the law, for the, for the word of God to the people. And so that's probably why Zephaniah references the book of Deuteronomy during this time. And it, um, <clears throat> it made the people more aware of the law than they had been uh, before its discovery. It had been many, many years since the children of Israel had, had looked to the law and, and had regarded it as God's standard, God's law for them, and, and reverenced it. Zephaniah's reference uh, to the future destruction of Nineveh definitely fixed his writing before that event that took place in 612 B.C. So uh, the prophet ministered somewhere between 640 and, and 612. His, his uh, contemporaries were those of Nahum, Habakkuk, and Jeremiah. Uh, though Jeremiah's ministry continued uh, beyond the destruction of Jerusalem, which took place in 586 B.C. Just to give you a little history on this, on, on him and this book, Zephaniah contains uh, more references to the term, the day of the Lord, than any other Old Testament book. So this phrase sometimes refers to the past, uh, sometimes it refers to where they're living at that moment, uh, or to the near future, and then sometimes it, it's to the distant future, and then all the way to eschatological future, all right, the end time. And, and, and Zephaniah seems to cover all of it. It's marvelous in just three chapters. Uh, it's an extraordinary book. The phrase uh, always refers to some period of time in which God is working in the world and in a recognizable way. It usually refers to a time of, of uh, cursing and blasting, but sometimes to a time of blessing. The day of the Lord may be seen as the theme that unifies uh, the entirety of this book. So um, I want us to go to Zephaniah chapter 2 for a moment and look at this because amongst all the, the woes that, that are coming, are being prophesied toward uh, not only Jerusalem but to other foreign nations and ultimately to all nations, he says this thing, the Lord says, Seek the Lord, all you meek of the earth who have upheld his justice. Seek righteousness, seek humility. It may be that you will be Hidden, isn't it interesting that Zephaniah's name means Yahweh has hidden, that you may be hidden in the day of the Lord's anger. So here we get a glimpse of the mercy of God, or let me say a glimpse of the heart of God, what he can offer those who will simply turn to him. And he offers mercy. And as, as the book of James says in James chapter 2, verse 13, mercy triumphs over judgment. All right, Our God is merciful, and he would rather give mercy than judgment any day. He has proven that throughout the scriptures, who he is and what is really in, his, in the forefront of his heart and his mind for people. Now let's go to the next chapter, Zephaniah chapter 3 and uh, uh, verse 1. Now this is where he's referring specifically to Jerusalem. All right, It says, woe to her who is rebellious and polluted to the oppressing city. And this is where we're going to pick up our memento for tonight, all right? She has not obeyed his voice. She has not received correction. She has not trusted in the Lord. She has not drawn near to her God. All right, so four things. We're just going to turn it around, all right? Very simple truths for you to chew on this week. Number one, obey his voice. All right, when God speaks, obey. How many of you have kids? How many of you appreciate obedience? Yeah, you'd never appreciate it more than to, to when you had kids right? And to obey means to not only hear, but do what you just heard, right? It's not enough for them to say, I heard you. Okay, that's great that you heard me. Prove that you heard me. 
Put some legs on it. Right? Simply obey his voice. Trust the Lord. Believe, believe. Oh, well, that's another one. Okay. Obey him. All right? Because God is always... Let me, let me just remind us all here tonight, and we all need to be reminded of this from time to time. When God speaks, it's not always the easiest thing to follow his voice. He's not always going to tell you to do the easiest thing, but he's going to always lead you in the right direction. And when God speaks, you don't necessarily have to understand it to obey him. All right? He wants you to look at him and believe what he is saying and follow his voice He's always going to lead you down a path that brings blessing into your life, a path that will increase you, a path that will bring peace and joy to you, all right? So you obey him, it's good. How about this one? Receive correction. Yikes. You know, David said that it is the fool who hates or despises correction, all right? In other words, stay teachable. For the rest of your life, decide you're going to learn something. All right? Because you're never going to arrive here on the earth. Because as, as much as you can learn here, when we get to heaven, it's not even going to be a drop in the bucket to what we know there. Hmm? So stay teachable. And then God will always teach you. And there's something about staying teachable and staying humble that go hand in hand. Hmm? Stay teachable, stay humble. Receive correction. Number three, trust in the Lord. Yeah. Amen. Yeah. Trust in the Lord. What does Psalm or Proverbs chapter three say? With all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding, but in all your ways acknowledge him, and he will direct your paths. All right, obey his voice, receive correction, trust in the Lord, and finally draw near to God. Draw near to God. Yeah. Draw near to him. Have a time in your life. And, and this is something that I heard a man say years ago, and I have continued to repeat what this man has said. Have a non-negotiable time with God every day. Non-negotiable, where you are going to draw near to him. You're going to pray. You're going to look into his word. You're going to pray how you know how to pray. You're going to pray in the spirit. But you're going to make yourself aware of his presence in your life because he is always there. Paul said, this mystery that was hidden from the ages, it's now revealed. It's Christ in you. Hallelujah. Which means if he's in you, that means wherever you go, he goes. Yeah. Right? Where you go, he goes. So yeah. <clears throat> just draw near to him. And he's, he's as near as that prayer. Uh, he's as near as just looking into that perfect law of liberty. See, and here's, here's, I think, one of the things that will be appealing to us, that will inspire you in this way. I'm not saying, now I can remember growing up, we had, we had certain rules about how we drew near to God. If we were going to pray, it was going to be for one hour, dadgummit. And by the time I got through praying for an hour, I didn't know who was more relieved, God or me, that that thing was over, that that prayer time was over. It had to be one hour. Right? And if we're going to read the Bible, it had to be three chapters. Right? We had to do three chapters and we had to pray one hour. And we had to, you know. And so it made it laborious and it made it work and it was just, bleh, if I can put it in my terms. <laughs> but when you see what the scripture really is, the scripture says, in, in Hebrews chapter 4, that the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, 
piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and the joints and marrow and as a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. And then you read over John chapter 1, verse 1. It says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now think about that for a moment. Jesus said, it's the Scriptures that testify of me. So if you will see the Bible not as a duty, Bible reading as a duty, but when you open that book up and you look into it, it is just as powerful and just as real as a face-to-face encounter with Jesus himself. Because he is his word and his word is him. And the book of Psalms says that God himself exalts his own word even above his own name. He exalts his word even above his own name. That's an amazing thought. Because his name is attached to his word. And if his word is not good, if it can't be trusted, then his name is no good. But because his word is good, his name is good. Amen. Amen. So draw near to God. Amen. Okay, now, let's, I, I want to just, just give you, as the attraction, I'm not going to read a section of Scripture as I usually do for the attraction because there's just, well, let me just summarize it, okay? I'm just going to paraphrase this part of, of Zephaniah because reading Zephaniah, especially getting into chapter 2 and part of chapter 3, is somewhat like watching a, a science fiction movie about a, a nuclear disaster uh, that, that leaves nothing but wasteland and, you know, no flowers, no life, no fruit trees. It's just nuclear disaster and, and no, no, no beauty anywhere. And the reason for it is that the vast number of people have become complacent and indifferent. And they disregard and they ignore God. They do not obey God's voice. They don't receive his correction. They don't trust in him and they don't draw near to him. They are materialized. They've become self-centered, living uh, oblivious to their danger that's, that's coming. And so God has been patient and God has, has been long-suffering and he's, and he's warned them all along the way amongst many prophets and yet here they find themselves in this place of indecision and complacency. And that's one of the things I want to just say for a moment to, tonight is that maybe, maybe the problem, maybe the trouble in your life is not one of a mountain that's standing before you. Maybe it's not because something bad has happened. Maybe it's just the fact that you know what to do, you just haven't done it. Maybe that is the problem. It's just you've become comfortable and complacent, therefore apathetic. When you know that the move is on you, the ball is in your court, and, 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 and if you stand there long enough and reason and justify why you're doing what you're doing, why you haven't moved and blaming others and saying, I haven't heard a specific word from God when you know beyond a shadow of a doubt that it's your move. That nothing is going to, you're, you're, there's not going to be any advancement. God's not going to push you. He's, give you. he's given you the will to say, yes, I'll do it. Hmm? So maybe tonight, I, I want to encourage you, break out of that complacency. Don't spend one more day Standing, doing nothing when you know what to do. Amen? Okay. That was another one. That was another memento, I guess. Okay. But, so the, the intent, what is the intent of all this terrible activity that, that we read about in the book of, of Zephaniah? Um, 
It is the creation. Out of this comes the creation of a, of a new order with God himself enthroned among his people. Chapter 3 of this prophecy is, is such a different picture of the future. And, and, and some commentators believe that another that, that chapter 3 is actually written by someone else because it's so different from the first two chapters. I think it's all Zephaniah. but Because uh, chapter 3 describes songs instead of sorrow. It's glorious. And, and, uh, and, and th- th- that the intent of this judgment um, was to bring a, a good end. A marvelous restoration would follow this devastating judgment. So that's basically Zephaniah summed up. All right, it's, it's this impending doom, it's the pronouncement of the judgment, but then in the end, there's always hope. There's always hope. And we see this theme throughout the prophets, one after another, one after another, one after another. But I want to take a moment to look and, and uh, look into the person of Jesus, and that's found in chapter 3 of Zechariah, uh, verse 14. Everybody good? Yeah. Listen to this. Verse 14. Sing, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Be glad and rejoice with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away your judgments. Oh, that's good news, isn't it? The Lord has taken away your judgments. He has cast out your enemy. When did this happen? He has taken away your judgments. He has cast out your enemy. I'm wondering when this happened. When God judged Jesus for all of our sins. Huh? When John says, for this purpose, the Son of God was manifested to destroy the works of the devil. Well, did he do it? Okay. He has cast out, this is beautiful, your enemy, the King of Israel. The Lord is in your midst. Now he's talking about the time when Jesus Christ himself will sit as the, as the Son of David, will sit on the literal throne of David, and he will establish his kingdom in the earth once for all. You will see disaster no more. In that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, do not fear. Zion, let not your hands be weak. The Lord your God in your midst, the mighty one, will save. In the book of Zephaniah, it is Jesus Christ, the mighty one, to save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. And that's the difference between our day on this side of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ and those who did not have your reality. Because God back then was imputing their sins to them. But now, praise God, it's a different day for us. That God justified the ungodly. How did he do that? By not imputing their trespasses to them. Amen. God was in Christ, reconciling the whole world to himself not imputing their trespasses to them. In other words, God got over the sin issue. God got over the sin issue in his son, blamed him for all the sins of mankind, and Jesus paid the penalty for it. He died the death that sin brought, and now we all have been reconciled to God. But we're not reconciled to him unless we believe. God has reconciled us to him. On his part, it's done, right? It's done on his side, but he's waiting for you. He's waiting for you to believe it so that you'll experience that from your side. Amen. God was in Christ reconciled. So God's not angry today. He's not angry at the sins of man. That's, that's done. If he is, he's not, he's not just. If he is angry at sin still, then, then he did Jesus wrong. All right? But he's not. 
It's not. It's ridiculous for men to stand in pulpits and tell people that God is angry at their sin. They have no, they have no revelation of what Jesus did for us. None. Now, there is a wrath, and we've talked about this. There is a wrath that is being stored up in that lamb. Jesus Christ himself is going to avenge his blood, right? For those who rejected his sacrifice, that day of wrath is coming. And he has a right to. Because that blood paid for every soul of man. And the souls of men, the men that would reject that payment, it's not going to be good. It's just not going to be a good day for them. All right? And he has every right to do that because he is the lamb that was slain from the foundation of the world. And this is called the wrath of the lamb. All right? The lamb must be avenged. Amen. Okay, we must keep going. All right, but he's the mighty one to save. That's why we tell the good news that he's the mighty one to save. The gospel is him. Christ died, Christ was buried, Christ rose again from the dead. Bam, there's the good news. If you'll believe on him, you'll receive everlasting life. Glorious gospel, all right? Let's go to Haggai now. Now, uh, I understand what time it is, but I don't care. I'm just kidding. You know I'm kidding. I'm going to keep it up. I have a board meeting after this, so I can't be too much longer. I didn't hear any amens from my board members, so okay, well, then we'll keep going then. Uh, the Babylonians... Uh, that were led by King Nebuchadnezzar. Remember, they, st they, they destroyed the city of Jerusalem, including Solomon's temple in 586 B.C., and took most of the Jews captive to Babylon. So there, the, the, the Israelites, when they were in Babylon, could not practice their formal worship uh, as the Mosaic law had prescribed them, and because they, they lacked an authorized altar and, and, and temple. So they established these synagogues where they assembled to hear their law read and to worship God uh, informally. But King Cyrus of Persia allowed the Jewish exiles to return to their land in 538 BC. And, and at least three waves of uh, returnees, if you will, uh, took advantage of this opportunity. Uh, the first of these was the group of almost 50,000 Jews that returned under the leadership of Sheshbazar, otherwise known as Zerubbabel. Y'all know remember the name Zerubbabel? Let's all make a friend of the word Zerubbabel, all right? Zerubbabel. If you've, you're halfway to speaking in tongues. <laughs> Zerubbabel in 537 B.C. Ezra, the scribe, um, led the second wave of 1,700 men plus women and children back to Jerusalem in 458. And then Nehemiah led the third wave of 42,000 back in 444 B.C. So Haggai and Zechariah appear to have been the two of the returnees who accompanied Zerubbabel and also a man by the name of Joshua, not Joshua uh, the son of Nun, but Joshua, the high priest. So the date of this time, he delivered these four messages uh, to the restoration uh, community, and he dated all of them in the second year of King Darius, all right, uh, <clears throat> of Persia. So somewhere around 520 B.C. is where we can find this writing of Haggai, okay? Uh, Ezekiel and Daniel uh, had probably died by this time, and so his ministry, as this book records, uh, spanned less than four months. Interesting, the writing of this book is about four months long. And from the, the first day of the sixth month to the 24th day of the ninth month, and we'll see that in the scripture in just a moment. So we'll put that in the modern calendar, okay? So it'd be like August the 29th uh, through December the 18th, okay, of, of 520 B.C. So this means that 
He was the first writing prophet to address uh, those returning Israelites from Babylon, from captivity. And Zechariah began writing in the eighth month, so he, he was not long after Haggai to continue to encourage the people. So uh, this, this book contains four very short messages. It's only two chapters long, and he preached to the returned Jews in less than four months, and, and, and Haggai was clearly aware that the messages that he preached to the Israelites were from God. And in contrast to almost all of the other prophets that wrote, the, the, the minor prophets especially, Haggai was successful in his writing in that the people to whom he preached listened to him and they obeyed his exhortations. So it's really marvelous. Interestingly, his message has none of the elements that are so common in the other biblical writings of the prophets. For instance, he did not speak against idolatry. We see the other prophets hammering away at Israel's idolatry. He never makes mention of it. Um, he said nothing of uh, social ills and abuses of, of the legal systems of that time, nor did he preach against adultery or mingling amongst other nations. Never addressed those things. His one theme is to rebuild God's temple. That's why Haggai's here, to get them to work on the temple since the, the, the destruction of Solomon's temple. So each of his four messages deals with one of four problems. First, it deals with the problem of misplaced priority by the people. Second, it deals with incorrect perspective of the people. It also deals with unrealistic expectation. And finally, unnecessary fear. Haggai chapter 1, verse 2. Let's bring that up for just a moment. Thus speaks the Lord of hosts, saying, This people says, the time has, this people says, the time has not come, the time that the Lord's house should be built. This is God saying, this is what the people are saying. It's not time yet. It's not time yet. All right? So they have misplaced priority. And, and you can go on to read because they didn't think it was time to proceed with the rebuilding of the temple because they were busy building their own houses and had forgotten God's previous commands to rebuild the temple. They were very motivated when it came to building their own lives, to building their own careers, to building their own homes for themselves and they saw the need and proceeded to do something about that. But when it came to building a house that would honor their God and enable them to worship him as he had commanded and exalt his reputation in their land, in their land they simply waited and waited and waited and waited. 17 years passed by in this waiting. And it was time to finish the unfinished temple structure, but the people put it on hold while they gave priority to what was more important to them. The second problem that he addressed was the, was the, the problem of incorrect perspective. Uh, Haggai 2.3 says, Who is left among you who saw this temple in its former glory? And how do you see it now? In comparison with it, is this not in your eyes as nothing? So God is now addressing the fact that they are thinking that, okay, this temple that we're constructing is building now doesn't even compare to that of Solomon. So what's the use? What's the use? And so, as a result, they stopped building again. And Haggai's continually having to motivate them past these things. Uh, when, uh, some of the people who had been there before, before the destruction of Jerusalem and Solomon's temple, they, they would recall those former days and talk about the glory of Solomon's temple. And now they're looking at what they're building now, and it just doesn't seem to be worth it. So they were, they were saying that the present temple was nothing in comparison to the other. The third problem was unrealistic expectations. The people thought that because they had taken on this project of rebuilding the temple that God would begin to bless them greatly. Uh, they looked at their external obedience 
as what God should bless. And Haggai reminded them that it was, it was God who blessed them from the beginning before they started performing for him. It was, so what he's looking for is not the fact that they're stacking stones on one another. What they're looking at is a heart that's devoted to God. Look at Haggai 2. All right, we're going to read on this for a second. Verse 11, thus says the Lord of hosts, Now ask the priest concerning the law, saying, If one carries holy meat in the fold of his garment, and with the edge he touches bread or stew, wine or oil or any food, will it become holy? Then the priest answered and said, No. And Haggai said, If one who is unclean because of a dead body touches any of these, will it be unclean? So the priest answered and said, It shall be unclean. Then Haggai answered and said, So is this people, and so is this nation before me, says the Lord, and so is every work of their hands, and what they offer there is unclean. And now carefully consider from this day forward, uh, from before stone was laid upon stone in the temple of the Lord. Since those days when one came to a heap of 20 ephahs, there were but 10. When one came uh, to the wine vat to draw out 50 baths from the press, there were but 20. I struck you with blight and mildew and hail and all the labors of your hands, yet you did not turn to me, says the Lord. Consider now from this day forward, from the 24th day of the ninth month, from the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider it, is the seed still in the barn? In other words, your labor hasn't started yet. And yet the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree have not yielded fruit. But from this day, I will bless you. Not because you labored for it, but while the seed is still the seed, while it's still in the barn, before anything has yielded any fruit, before any work of your hands have been done, because all your stuff is defiled, because your purpose for doing it is defiled. And I'm telling you, my blessing is coming from me because I'm the God who blesses, not because you're the people who have earned it. All right, that's what he's saying. They have these unrealistic expectations, and that's, you know, that's the problem with legalism. That's the problem with performance-based relationship with God. You will never, ever, 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 ever earn his blessings, ever. So you might as well stop trying and just receive them by faith. Your prayer time will be so much more fun. It really will. It'll actually be about relationship and just getting to know your heavenly father. Right. Amen. All right, lastly, the fourth problem was their unnecessary fears. So the, the, the thing is, when they came back, when Israel came back and they, from captivity, they, they saw that, that their previous territory had been, uh, was under Gentile rule. And it continued that way, even through Jesus' time, the Roman Empire, but looked at the strength of the Gentile nations around them, and, and they concluded that their small country would never amount to anything. And, and so Haggai had to remind them that God would judge the Gentile nations one day. So they needed to look beyond uh, the immediate future and believe that God's promises concerning Israel's ultimate restoration uh, and exaltation over the nations would come to pass. This last, this last uh, reference here, not the last reference, it's the second to the last. I'm almost through. I'm trying to hurry. I hope you're getting all of this, but if not, listen to the podcast. Verse 20, it says, And again the word of the Lord came to Haggai on the 24th day of the month, saying, Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I will shake heaven and earth. I will overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I will destroy the strength of the Gentile kingdoms. I will overthrow the chariots and those who ride in them. The horses and the riders shall come down, everyone by the sword 
of his brother. In that day, says the Lord of hosts, I will take you, Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, uh, says the Lord, and will make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, says the Lord of hosts. So this is where he conquered, helped conquer their fear, helped them understand that his word is good and that Israel will be a mighty, mighty nation in the earth because God is with them. Let me remind you today that there are more who are with you than who are against you. All right? The devil, it can seem like all of hell's against you, but don't forget, there's twice as many angels as there are demons. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. So your victory is secure. Your victory is sure. And the person of Jesus is found in Haggai chapter 2, verse 7. And I will shake the nations, and they shall come to the desire of all nations. And that is him. And I will fill this temple with the glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, the gold is mine, says the Lord of hosts. The glory of this latter temple. Now Haggai is reaching all the way into that day when the kingdom of God is established on the earth and Jesus is ruling and reigning as our king. The glory of this latter temple will be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace, says the Lord of hosts. In Haggai also, Jesus is the restorer of the lost heritage. He's the restorer of the lost heritage. What Adam did in bringing sin and death, Christ did by bringing righteousness and peace and salvation. Amen. Father, we thank you for this time together. Thank you, Lord, for the glory of your word. Thank you. Thank you so much, Lord, that we can peek back into time and look how, uh, how men, Lord, related to you and how you, you, even back then, God, showed us what we are all experiencing in reality. Thank you for listening, and we hope you enjoyed the message. For more information about One Cause Church, please visit us online at onecausechurch.com.